Before we get to this week's episode, let's take a second and talk about Cuts Clothing. Guys, work attire has completely changed. You don't have to wear stuffy and uncomfortable clothes anymore. Suits and ties are a thing of the past, and I think we're all happy about that. But what are we supposed to wear instead? Well, that's the problem Stephen Borelli wanted to solve when he set out to create a company called Cuts. In 2016, Stephen set out to make clothes that were ready for every occasion that the modern man faces. He started by reinventing the t-shirt. The signature, buttery soft, custom-engineered Pika Pro Tribal and Tee It's bold new take on a classic design, combining the ultimate blend of high-quality cotton, polyester, and spandex, and is also what GQ magazine calls the only shirt worth wearing. With a minimalist design that is professional enough for the office, yet comfortable enough for a night out on the town, Cuts combines versatility with style, so you have the perfect look for every occasion. Cuts clothing is work-leisure apparel for the sport of business. Right now, you can get 15% off your entire purchase by heading to CutsClothing.com and signing up with your email or joining the VIP membership club for 25% off. So go visit Cuts Clothing today. That's C-U-T-S Clothing.com. And now, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and here's another episode of Between the Tackles. What is good, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Between the Tackles. Um, I am your host, Matt Tweed. I'm here every week giving you the rundown on NFL stuff. We just had NFC and AFC Conference Championship Week, in my opinion. That is always the best week of playoff football. You have just just really usually really close games and it's just a lot of like it's almost like the final four for the NCAA tournament like obviously you want to win the final four to get to the national championship but like it just seems like the big culminating like big achievement is to get to that final four and so the same thing kind of in the NFL obviously you want to get to the Super Bowl and win it but like the Super Bowl just seems like so much of a fanfare and like pomp and circumstance type thing But the conference championship week is not. Like, getting to the championship game always seems like the mountaintop. And then, like, yeah, if you win the Super Bowl, great. But if you make it there and you lose, you don't really get penalized for it like you do in, like, the NBA Finals or things like that. You know, people getting shat on because they don't win the NBA Finals just seems insane to me. But not getting to the conference championship and then having a chance to play for the finals seems like a bigger deal. Same thing with and all that. So I love conference championship week. Obviously the week before, um, you know, two weekends ago, the, the divisional round was an insane weekend of football. Every game was awesome, but both these games were also so freaking good. Um, and so we're going to get to those, um, in a minute, but first I want to just talk about a bunch of news, you know? So last week, or not not last week I'm my brain's a little fogged um yesterday we got report that Tom Brady um will be retiring and that came from Jeff Darlington and Adam Schefter um at ESPN they put out a a tweet and then an article about um basically that Tom Brady had decided to retire and what was interesting was like we didn't see anything from Tom Brady's side. We didn't see anything from his agent, you know, the Bucks, anything like that. All we heard was that Tom Brady was retiring. And so I instantly was not that I didn't believe the report, but I was like, man, I don't see anybody else saying anything. And like somebody leaked this. And so then my next question was, well, well who the hell leaked this? Like you would assume Tom Brady would want to go out on his own terms. And, um, that was just interesting that it was it was 
reported by two people who weren't even in the organization who obviously were definitely tied and have great connections there but just seemed weird that Tom Brady didn't put anything out on his own and and retire on his own um and so that's what I thought was interesting there but um nonetheless that was put out first and then there was a report later that day um from Mike Silver I believe who had said that um who had said that Tom Brady had not made a decision, that he had told the Bucks GM that he was still deciding and that he would be the one to tell when he was retiring, when it was official. So you got this first report that said, oh, Brady's retiring, every news outlet goes with it, everybody starts to praise him, congratulate him, you know, mem- give him a memorial uh, or memoriam of everything. And then you get this report from Tom Brady or somebody that is close to Tom Brady in the Bucks GM that says that's not true, he hasn't made a decision yet. So, um, fast forward, you know, recording this part, uh, I'm, I'm pushing this in between two other things because this stuff happened after I had recorded already on a Tuesday. This stuff came out, I believe, um, maybe Wednesday. Um, this is today's Thursday, putting this part in, but, um, nonetheless, Wednesday, Maybe even maybe even later the day that the original recording of this, um, Tom Brady did come out on his on his own and um, say that he is retiring and that it is official that it is done. Um, he's calling it quits and that basically you know that he he knows when it's time. He never you know he he envisioned when the day would come that it would be that time and he just feels like now is that time. Um, and so Tom Brady is retiring from the NFL and it will look different. Um, I mean, the, the greatest competitor, um, a winner accomplished player in this league, um, that we all love so much. And, you know, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to compare players. I'm not going to say best player. That's why I used a different, a bunch of different adjectives accomplished. He's a winner, um, a leader, but you know, I'm not going to say best player because there's people that are more talented than him there's people that are more strong that are stronger than him that are more uh gifted um more you know have more raw talent in their body but nobody maximized what they had and won more than tom brady and so that's what i'll say that he um what i will remember him by is um a couple things one that he um, was involved in some cheating which you know it is what it is um that he um, was someone that you always wanted to root against, but you knew that if you bet against him, you'd probably lose. Um, and just a straight-up winner. Um, every time he was in a Super Bowl or in some sort of championship game, you just kind of always knew that no matter what was happening, if they were down, um, he would come back. And if they were up, um, that he was just going to somehow manage the game in a way that they would win. Um I think he made it to 10 Super Bowls and has seven. So, I mean, the fact that he doesn't have more is insane Um, because he lost two to the Giants and one to the Eagles, I believe, Um, and maybe the Rams. No, it was the Eagles. So, yeah, so I think – oh, no, he lost – he beat the Rams, but um, that was an awful game. So, uh, so been to 10, won seven. Just insane what he's done. So, shout out to to Tom Brady. I mean, obviously, there'd be so much more to talk about, but um, just go on social media. You'll see enough of it. Um, you don't need to hear it from me again. But just shout out Tom Brady on an, an incredible, maybe the best, most accomplished career in the NFL. Um, and whatever you choose to do, it sounds like he's got some business ventures and whatever he chooses to do, I'm sure he'll be great at. Um, and now he wants to be with his kids and he gets to do that.
Okay, so that was the the fun stuff, um, the the nice, genuine stuff. Let's talk about the serious stuff that came out um, on Wednesday, maybe even Tuesday. No, it was Tuesday evening. Um, Brian Flores um, is filing a lawsuit and is suing the NFL um, for several things, um, but w- within his lawsuit is essentially um, – just racist undertones and racist overtones, just racism in general um, throughout the hiring process and throughout just the NFL, um, which he is suing it for. So essentially, I'm going to try and break this down as layman as possible um, and and give the major details because I've read through the lawsuit. I, I don't understand a lot of it, but I do understand the main points and some of the headlines and some of the big themes and stuff that you can pull out from this lawsuit. The first one is if you scroll through the lawsuit that was put on um, – social media but is out in the it is public um is that essentially there is a quote from brian flores that basically he is willing to give up his coaching career to make change and listen i you know i i can't imagine to understand what it is like i am a white male i am not an nfl coach i have not been successful in any sort of athletic stature um outside of high school um an intramural college shout out that but um, uh, but to be serious, I have not had any sort of success in that nature. And I, like I said, I'm a white male, so I don't understand. Um, I can't even begin to walk in the shoes, um, or to understand, to walk in the shoes, um, of a black NFL head coach. So I want to first and foremost applaud Brian for Brian, Brian Flores for what he is doing. Um, he is Again, with we've seen with Cap, we've seen with um, people of color that want to risk something in their profession um, to make change. It unfortunately and a lot of the times inevitably means that their career is over. And that is unfair. That is not right. That is completely wrong. But that is sometimes the, the reality of where we are. Um, and so I want to applaud him for doing that because it could mean and will historically mean the end of his coaching career. Now, if you ask me, though, I actually think that if this if this goes the way he wants and it brings change, I think he will coach again. And there may be a chance that he coaches again soon. Um, I don't know if it's this year, but it could be very soon. Um, I know uh, Chris Broussard thinks that he will. Um, I don't know if he will. I'm, I'm just going to go off of history and say that I don't know that he will. Um, but I wanted to first and foremost just say that I applaud him for what he is doing, something that is bigger than him. Um, I think everybody, if we're honest, we are put on this earth to leave it better than when we found it. I believe that's one thing um, that we all are called to do, regardless of what you believe faith-wise, religion-wise, what your philosophical and belief system is. Um, I believe that everything we can that we all can agree on, that when you enter this world, you should try to leave this world better than how you, you entered it. Um, and I believe Brian Flores is trying to do that um, in a major way, in a major bombshell of a lawsuit um, towards the NFL. So that's first and foremost, applauding Brian Flores. All right, let's get into the nitty-gritty here. So in the um, lawsuit, there are text messages between Brian Flores and Bill Belichick. And I think there's some fu- there's some funny nuance to this and there's some serious nuance to this. Let's start with the funny nuance. Um, Bill Belichick uses a lot of exclamation points um, for an old person texting. I think what we do with old, what, like with old people texting, it's either like shortened phrases and letters and words and then no punctuation. Um, or you get the crazy side of it, which is Bill Belichick, which is so many exclamation points and question marks and just punctuation out the ass. Um, and so I think the format of the texting was really funny um, in that sense. <laughs> But um, that was kind of the, the funny part of it. Let's talk about, though, um, the 
serious nature of it. So the text messages were essentially of Brian Flores and Bill Belichick texting back and forth and Bill Belichick congratulating who he thought was Brian Flores on, on being the man for the job for um, the Giants. So the timeline is that um, Brian Flores had an interview on January 27th. Three days prior to that, Bill Belichick texts who he think is Brian Flores and congratulates him on being the man for the job in New York. Then Brian Flores starts to figure out, well, I haven't even interviewed yet. And then stuff starts to come out about Brian Dayball being the head coach. And that was three days prior to his interview. So Bill Belichick is texting who he thinks is Brian Dayball and is congratulating him on getting the job. It's actually Brian Flores. Bill Belichick then has to double-check and ask because the person texting Bill Belichick is confused, and he says, wait, is this Brian Flores or is this Brian Dable? And Brian Flores says, this is... Or Brian Flores asks, and, um, and then he then realizes... Belichick realizes it's Brian Flores and he apologizes and he says, I'm so sorry. So um, Emmanuel Acho was on The Herd yesterday and um, again on Wednesday and he brought up a very, very funny analogy but very believable and understandable. He said, we all have that, you know, we all probably have that friend or that friend group where there's that one person in the group text that's really, really annoying and they blow up the group text and or they just they just or they don't blow up their group text. They don't really respond to it. And everybody is has their own. They have a smaller group text without that person on the side. And they're talking about that person in that group text. We all know that exists. We all hope it's not us, but it is what it is. And it exists. Well, he brought up that the same analogy could go for black coaches in the NFL. That um, they all know that there's a group text going on around them, but they can't prove it. Well, what Bill Belichick just did is he took the proof and put it in the inside. He took what was outside and put it inside and proved that there is a group text that, is ex- that does exist and it's real, and he just brought it to the light. In other words, that there are people that are just interviewing black coaches just to interview them for the Rooney Rule, but that they have a white coach in mind even before they hire or they interview that black coach, just to give some numbers behind it. So since the Rooney Rule is instituted, the Giants have done the least amount and interviewed the least amount of minority head coaches in the NFL. They are doing the bare minimum for the Rooney rule. Emmanuel Acho also brings this up and I completely agree. And it's a great, again, analogy. If you're doing the bare minimum of something, you don't really want to do it. Right? Like if, if I, if my wife asks me to clean the house and I just get a broom and sweep the kitchen and say, I'm done. I didn't really want to clean the house. I did the bare minimum. If I just sweep the entire house, but I don't mop and I don't disinfect and I don't, you know, um, shine and and what wax other wood products and things that don't clean a bathroom. If I just take my broom and do a quick sweep around the house, I did the bare minimum, and I didn't want to do it. And it's the same thing for what the Giants have proven with this Rooney Rule. 
They barely want to do it. They don't, they, sorry, they barely do anything. They don't want to do it. And so they do the bare minimum just to say they did it. So we take that same analogy and then we, or not analogy, that same evidence. And then we apply it to this and we go, okay, well, they basically told Brian Flores, they told Brian Flores he had an interview on the 27th, but they already had their guy on the 24th. In other words, they were just making him a number to fit the Rooney rule. And he was going to be the only one, by the way, just based off historical evidence. So that's part. That's kind of the damning part of this is that now we have proof that this is happening in an organization. And it happened three days prior to an interview where someone already had the job and they were just interviewing to get a number by. So there's part one. Part two, which, listen, the racism and the coaching discrepancies in the NFL where minorities don't have coaching representation in the NFL is the biggest issue. It's it's a big issue. Imagine waking up tomorrow and the NHL has a higher percentage of black coaches and minority coaches than they do white. Wouldn't that be weird to you? Like, the NHL is heavily... 90, I think 93% white and 7% minority and probably half of that, let's call it 3% is black. So if we took that percentage and then we just had 40% black coaches or minority coaches in the NHL, wouldn't that be weird to you because it's not a representation of your league? I think that would be weird. If that, and I'm not, again, it would be great, but it would be different just based on the numbers and, and the representation wouldn't match up. So let's apply the same energy to the NFL. 70% black players in the NFL, and we have 3% coaches that are black. Come on now. Wake up. That's the problem. And the problem starts with ownership because all ownership is white for the most part. And then it trickles down. If you don't fix white owner, if white ownership is the, the case, Emmanuel Acho said this months ago. He said, if you have white ownership, White people and white ownership will most likely hire people that look like them and act like them, which will be white people. And so it kind of trickles down, and then it trickles down into coaching. And you kind of just end up hiring your friends who look like you and sound like you and act like you, and it ends up just being a white party. So here we are. That's kind of the race thing is the big issue. But now the other thing that came out in this lawsuit, which is insane— is that Dolphins owner Stephen Ross or GM owner? I can't remember which one it was. Uh, it probably would have been. I think it's. I think it's GM. But either way, GM or owner Stephen Ross came out and said that, or um, Brian Flores said that he was that he was incentivizing him to lose with money in order to tank. Now, <laughs> this presents several problems. One, we we probably can assume that this isn't the only organization that has done this. Apparently, Hugh Jackson was insinuating that Cleveland did the same thing, and someone tweeted, well, he must have made a lot of money the way that he was coaching. Anyway, so first part is we have, we have problems that we're basically fixing games, essentially. I mean, it's not fixing because it's not necessarily gambling-initiated or uh, motivated, but it is fixing in the sense of losing on purpose to get a better draft position, which teams do, but there's not necessarily proof that they're doing it for any other incentive than to tank to get a better draft pick. Now there's financial implications involved. And listen, coaches don't want to do that. Coaches want to prove that they can win with whatever hand they're dealt. So 
I don't believe that Brian Flores was taking money to lose. I'm sure, again, knowing Brian Flores, that he was turning that down. But it means that it's happening, or sorry, that it's being offered. And it means that it could be happening that we haven't been able to prove yet. But, but Brian Flores is shedding light to a system that's also broken where a GM and owner is, or, or owner is trying to incentivize you to tank with cash. Now, someone brought up that this could really have a ripple effect into the gambling community because now we have to think about that. Like, now it is, it is a thing we have to think about. Like, with everything that gets brought to light in, in life, but in sports specifically, that we didn't think we, that we talked about or didn't even think to talk about, but now is talked about, it means we have to think about it. Like, with Donaghy in the NBA and a referee fixing games because he had a gambling problem, you've always thought about it or thought, oh, wouldn't that be weird? Like, they have a lot of power, you know, like, blah, blah, blah. But then when you hear a story about it, you're like, oh, now I have to think about it. All the time I think about it. Like, do any any other of these refs have any financial motivation the way they're calling these games, whether it be in any sport? So now you have to think about it. Now with the NFL, you have to think about how many, how often, how prevalent is it that these coaches maybe are getting incentivized to tank with cash, which then can send a ripple into the gambling world. Each game, if you're playing a team that's shitty, are they just going to tank because there's cash on the line? Gambling or just in their contract? Or outside of their contract. So that's kind of the other damning thing. Um, And I think overall, again, like, I think Brian Flores is a great case. I know the NFL is obviously going to deny everything. I know the NFL is going to come out and have a bunch of people to tell you that it's not real and that this is, there's no claim. Listen, when I say this, there's claim. (laughs) Like, this is, this is somebody that is willing to risk his career for this. And that means that there's claim. Again, I make it very clear that this has been going on for a while and, and no one wanted to necessarily end their career over it or, or ruin what they had. Brian Flores doesn't give a rip about that. He wants change. And so there's claim. That's part one. Part two is, where the hell is Roger Goodell in all of this? Someone literally in a lawsuit alleged that there is an owner or GM out there incentivizing to lose games on purpose for cash. I mean, Roger Goodell led a two-year witch hunt for Tom Brady deflating footballs, for which I amount to being not that big of a deal. And he's just going to sit back and not comment at all on what's been said about Stephen Ross? It's a double standard, man. He, prote- he, wanted, to, he wanted to nail Tom Brady, but he won't want to go after Stephen Ross right now? What are we talking about? So... um. I just think it's really interesting that that Roger Goodell is nowhere to be found in this so far, and it's been now two days, um, and I haven't seen anything from from Roger Goodell personally. So those are the two kind of major, major news bombs that happened over the past couple days. Um, but, um, you know, we talked about a little bit of the coaching news, but not a lot had happened in terms of, um, you know, NFL coaches and um, stuff like that. So let's kind of break down everything that's happened in terms of, um, you know, the the interviews and all of the stuff that's happening in the NFL. So as of right now, and this again, this is recording this um, on Tuesday, February 1st in the afternoon, about two o'clock. So still obviously a bunch of stuff could happen. But here's where we are. Again, this was as of um Right now, but yesterday there was a tweet that went out that said there was nine total coaching jobs still open. Okay, so uh, sorry, there at one point once the season ended, everybody had made their 
There are fires. There was nine. Four have been filled, and there are five still left to fill. So the four that have been filled, the Raiders um, have agreed in principle um, to make a hire with Josh McDaniels. Um, Nathaniel Hackett, the offensive coordinator for the Packers, is going to the Broncos to be their head coach. The Bears um, have hired defensive coordinator from the Colts, Matt Eberfluss, and then the Giants hired um, offensive coordinator for the Bills, Brian Dable. So there's five still remaining, the Jags, the Vikings, the Dolphins, the Texans, and the Saints. Now, let's kind of talk through the hires as they are right now, because I have some thoughts. Um, I'm going to talk about obviously my team first. I'm going to talk about um, I'm going to talk about the Bears. So I I don't know a whole lot about Matt um, about Eberfluss, and and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. I probably should know that. Um, but here we are. So I'm going to give a little bit about all of these guys if I know enough. Um, you know about McDaniel's Hackett, Eberfluss, and Dable. Um, but let's talk Bears because they're my team. So I've tweeted this. I've texted this to every single person that's asked me how I feel about it. Here's what I'll say. I don't know enough about him. Um, I know he had a great defense in, in Indianapolis, but sometimes the defense got shredded. Sometimes it was fine. Um, I know they had a good defense overall, like ranked pretty top 10 in, in a lot of categories. So I know the defense was good, and I know the defense in Chicago um, has always been holding this team to be even competent. Um while the offense has just gone up in flames. So I believe that bringing in Matt to the team and bringing that defensive presence will be great for the defense. But here's my opinion on the offensive side of the football. As you know, on this podcast, I had told you who I wanted. I wanted an offensive-minded coach because I don't want to waste Justin Fields' rookie contract, and then he ends up getting ruined by horrible offensive schemes and then doesn't have a chance to be anything in this league. Now, I think he's so talented that even if you have a bad offensive scheme, like he showed at times, he can still flourish and still shows promise. But I wanted somebody to take that and solidify it and make it elite. So I wanted Brian Dable. I wanted a shot at the enemy. And then they brought over um, Ryan Poles, the, um, the GM or vice president of player personnel from Kansas City, and I thought that's an easy, direct connection, a communication line right to the enemy. Bring him right in. It would have been incredible. But nonetheless, they didn't go for Dayball. They didn't do Biennemi. And I said, well, why not throw some money at Greg Roman? You know, they had a rough year. Maybe what he did with Lamar Jackson, insane. Then there was, you know, some other some other head coaching options out there. And um, but then it came down to Jim Caldwell, um, Matt Eberfluss. And then one more name that's that's escaping me, but it was another defensive. Oh, and Dan Quinn. And I guess out of the three, I'm I'm okay with with Eberfluss. I I get it. Um, I understand the pedigree. But here's my my problem with the offensive side. When you hire a defensive coordinator as your head coach, that means that because their mindset is so heavily defensive focused, that they have to nail the offensive coordinator position, to be able to compensate for their lack of understanding the offensive abilities and offensive scheme, they have to hire an incredible OC. Here's the problem if you do that. And if you do achieve that, that offensive coordinator usually ends up getting a head coach job in like two years, as we've seen kind of the progression. So that means for a young quarterback who now in his, in his second year is going to be with a brand new scheme, 
if he only gets one to two years with this offensive coordinator, that is his third year in his contract, and he's going to have two more at least with now maybe a new offensive scheme he has to learn. And again, he's now going to be going through three offensive schemes in his five years as a quarterback. That's a lot to ask for a young guy. It's okay to do it to a vet or a proven starter in this league because they've already learned all this stuff. They've already got a bunch of reps and game film and um, coverages and everything that they can understand under their belt. But to do it with a young quarterback that has to nail the OC that then can that can then change in two years seems like a lot to ask and a little bit unfair. So I'm worried about that part. But then I got names like Pep Hamilton was, was an offensive coordinator candidate. That didn't happen. And I was really pumped about that. But... They brought in some guys that supposedly will be good. I'm excited to see what they do with Fields. And I have nothing but to be optimistic, at least, just to get Matt Nagy out of there. So that's my thoughts on the Bears. Raiders, what a hire with McDaniels. Um, they paired him. I'm drawing a blank on who they paired, paired him with. But in terms of the um, the GM over there, it should be a really, really good fit. Um, Nathaniel Hackett, again, we'll see if that helps lure Aaron Rodgers to Denver. I don't know. Um, but I don't know a whole lot about Hackett. Um, offensively, sometimes they seem great. Sometimes they seem super stagnant. But I guess every offense is that way. And then Dayball. If you're Dayball, you got a petition to get Russell Wilson there. Um, because I don't know what he's going to be able to do with Daniel Jones if that's the future um, that they're going to still stick with. And then Jags, Vikings, um, Dolphins, Texans, Saints. So it sounds like... Jim Harbaugh is going to either be a coach of the Vikings or the Dolphins. I know that that seems like kind of out of left field, but it does sound like that that is going to be something that he does, that he's going to be a coach somewhere in there. Um, So there's that. Um, And then I haven't really heard a whole lot. I know that um, Byron Leftwich was kind of the, one of the only people that was being interviewed for the Jags job. So it assumes it's going to be that Um, obviously with Sean Payton, retiring, which again, to talk about, I'd mentioned that a little bit in the the last episode, but um, Sean Payton is out. um, And so that means that you're going to definitely have some spots now in the Saints and in the Texans as well. I don't know who ends up at any of these places. Dan Quinn ended up pulling the classic politics move, which was, I'm actually going to remove myself from the race and I'm staying in Dallas because nobody wanted me, but I'm saying that I'm out on my terms, not on anybody else's terms. No, he's not getting he's not getting a head coaching job, so he's staying in Dallas, um, which means he must have interviewed really bad because there's still five options left, and Harbaugh is going to get one of them over Dan Quinn. So, but now Harbaugh was incredible in the NFL, so I get that. So that's the coaching carousel. Um, that's where we are now. Wanted to give a little update. Again, as, as things progress each week, um, we will talk about that. So let's quickly just talk about this episode. It, it's going to be a, like I said, it's going to be a recap of the conference championship games, and we're going to talk about how awesome they were and, and all that stuff. Um, we will then do a separate Super Bowl preview because this weekend is the Pro Bowl, so we don't have any, any um, playoff implication games. So next week will be... Um, an episode for the Super Bowl preview. Um, and then we will do like props, all the stuff that has some value, all that fun stuff um, for the 
for the Super Bowl. We may talk about favorite Super Bowl commercials. I may bring on my buddy Robert Bell again, um, and we'll talk about why in a minute, but um, his squad is now in the Super Bowl, and so maybe just kind of get his feeling on that and how pumped he was for this um, this past week. But let's jump right in and just talk about the two games. We'll talk about the gambling aspect, but then a lot of the storylines um, as well. So first game last week, um, or at last Sunday, was um, Cincinnati taking on Kansas City. So let's talk about it here because I think it's really interesting to see where we are um, in, yeah, I, I just think it's so wild um, that we we got to where we are from this game. So this game started off pretty much exactly how I thought. Um, we can talk about what I wagered. We can talk about what I thought was going to happen. But bottom line, I had teased Kansas City down to a pick em, basically just win the game. Because, now, did I think that they they were seven? They, they closed at seven. And did I think that they were going to win by more than seven? I did. I actually had them winning by 14 to 21 points. I thought it was a massive mismatch overall. And at, and at the start of the first quarter, into the second quarter, it was 21 to three, and I thought this game was over. Like, I was texting back and forth with Robert, my buddy, who's a Bengals fan, and he was obviously holding out hope because he's a fan, but I could tell that like he basically he didn't want to say it, but he had had essentially been worried that at, in that second quarter that it was over. Now, part of that is too, like he had confidence because the exact same stuff was happening in the first time when they played in week 17, which the Bengals ended up winning. He he had brought up and the broadcast had brought up too that at halftime of the of the week 17 game, the Bengals were also down eleven and it ended up winning in the end. But you're asking, well, Matt, how the hell did this game get to eleven? And if you're asking that question, let me tell you. So let me pull up the I just want to pull up the play by play here, the drives that were happening in this game, because what I don't think people I think, you know, we're going to, we obviously look back and we're like, oh, the Bengals are going to the Super Bowl. Like, what they did in the second half was incredible. Obviously, holding them to, to three points um, and they getting, you know, um, two touchdowns in the, in the second half. Cause I think it was 24 to 13, right? Yeah. So they got two touchdowns in the second half. So let's look at these numbers. Let's just look at the stats. Because if you look at Joe Burrow's stats, he was 23 of 38, 250, two touchdowns a pick. Not horrible. Actually, pretty good. He was very good. Mahomes, also good. 26 of 39, 275, three touchdowns, two picks. Now, one of those picks was one that basically fell into the hands of um, of Von Bell. Or maybe it was Eli Apple, one of the two. It just fell into his hands. He he picked it off, obviously not taking that away from him. But it wasn't like he made an incredible play to pick it off. It just fell into his hands and he caught it. Great job. So you could say he had a three touchdown, one pick. And both those numbers between him and Mahomes, or him and Burrow, look very similar. Again, rushing yards, nothing crazy. Even both leading receivers have very similar yardage numbers. Kelsey has way more receptions, but they have similar yardage yardage lines here. But let's just go through the drives here because I think that's, for me, what was so drastically different about this game. So here's the first half, by the way. 
First play, uh, Cincinnati punts. Then it goes touchdown Kansas City, field goal Bengals, touchdown Kansas City, punt, touchdown Kansas City, touchdown Bengals, end of half with no points. Now let's talk about the end of the half because everybody has their own opinion. Everybody's going to blame this on Andy Reid saying it was a bad, bad play call that he should have just kicked the field goal with five seconds or, you know, whatever the case is. Here's the thing. Andy Reid called a play that with five seconds is so easy that if there's nothing open in the end zone that you just ground it or you throw it out of the back of the end zone and you kick a field goal. This is 100% on Patrick Mahomes. You ha- Andy Reid has to have the confidence in his quarterback that he's not going to make the wrong play in that scenario. And he made the wrong play. This the, the He also made the—and we can talk about what happened at the end of the game too, which we will— but he also made a bad play. I'm, I'm going back to the drive here, or to this drive that's at the end of the half. At the end of the half, there's also a play on first and one from the one where, again, he these two plays were just... Now, you can say the play calls were bad, but again, you are almost guaranteed three points. So even if your play calls are bad, as long as you just don't run the clock out, it's fine. Or you don't throw an interception or turn it over. So at first and one from the one because of a pass interference penalty in the end zone, which again might have been sus, but whatever. First and one at the one. First and goal at the one. Mahomes throws an incomplete pass. There's still five seconds left. That is literally enough time to run a slant or even run fades. And if it doesn't work, you still can just put the ball into the ground and you have a field goal coming up. Instead, Mahomes throws a throws a out route to Tyreek Hill, who can't even get out of bounds. He has to try and throw his body into players to get into the end zone, and the clock runs out. That is a play that you, as as Mahomes, you have to just ground it. You can't make the hero play in that sense. And he just screwed up. He just made a mistake. And it literally broke him the rest of the game. Because the next six drives or five or six drives for Kansas City are punt, Punt, interception, punt, punt, and then a field goal to tie the game in overtime, which again was botched. That entire drive in the red zone was botched. Kansas City has the ball first and goal at the five with a minute and a half left and ends up having to kick a field goal from Cincinnati's 26-yard line on fourth and goal. How did you lose 21 yards in a minute and 30 seconds? Mahomes got sacked twice and fumbled one of them. So Mahomes completely fell apart. Say whatever you want about him. I think he's one of the most talented and maybe will go down as the best or second best quarterback to ever play this game. But you cannot deny that sometimes, and in this game specifically, in the moments they needed him to be his smartest, he was his dumbest. End of half, end of game. Be your smartest. Make the smartest play. You can do all the cool shit you want throughout the entire game, but at the end of half and end of game, if you make dumb shit happen and you and the game is close, you look like an idiot. And the game is on you. And he made a dumb play at the end of the half and didn't get three points, which would have put him up three touchdowns. It would have been it would have been twenty four conceivably. I know that obviously Cincinnati came down and got a touchdown after that. Or sorry, it was twenty-one to three. Then, then um, 
Cincinnati gets that amazing screen pass touchdown by P. Ryan, which not a lot of people will talk about. They're obviously going to talk about the second half, but that touchdown was huge because if Kansas City, if they don't get a touchdown there, and then Kansas City goes down the field and scores again, and it's twenty-eight to three. I'm sorry, it's over. Them. You could even make the argument that at twenty-four to ten, a two-score game, it's over. But shout out the Bengals because Ryan Rosillo talked about this on his podcast a couple weeks ago, or a couple episodes ago, and he talked about it on his newest, most recent episode. And he says this. He says that, like, the cliche of, like, being tough and fighting through toughness and mental toughness and mental fortitude, all that, is a lot of cliche. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we hear it, we sometimes probably roll our eyes, right? But this Bengals team is the epitome of that. They were 10-7. and seven. They weren't this overwhelmingly dominant NFL team. They lost seven games. They had a week span where they lost four of six in seven weeks. One of them was a bye. And they went to a loss and lost to the Jets, which, again, was on a controversial call, but they lost. And then they got beat by 25 to Cleveland, who didn't make the playoffs. Both those teams didn't make the playoffs. They got dominated, went four, lost four out of seven, or four out of six, and then in a, with a bye week in there. And yet, maybe we look at it now and go, maybe those seven losses were just setting them up to be able to, to take all the shots they're taking. The mental toughness, the, the, the fortitude you build by getting the shit kicked out of you and losing seven games all year, maybe that built them to be ready for this. You know, maybe they weren't, maybe because they weren't a front runner the entire year, like a Bills, like a Chiefs. And the Rams went through some shit too. They had a really rough month, I think, in either November or December. They went, Stafford was awful. So some of these other teams, like your Packers, um, the 49ers were tough as hell. So some of your biggest front runners aren't here. I mean, obviously the Chiefs were a front runner. Now they went through a rough stretch, you know, in the in the beginning, but then they front ran the rest of the way. But the Bills were a pretty front running team. The Packers clearly were. But these teams that were left now with were some of the went through some brutal stretches. You know, so I mean, I know the Rams, I think, were 13 and 4 or 12 and 5 or something like that. So a much better record, obviously, than the Bengals. But both these teams went through some stretches that were rough, where they were questioned as if they were even good. And I did it too. So shout out the Bengals for literally getting pummeled the first quarter and a half and then coming back and making Mahomes look lost. This defense in the second half was insane. Now, you can attribute it to a couple things. You can say it was because Mahomes was mentally broken after what happened in the first half, or you can say it was this, that, and the other. I don't care what it was. The The bottom line is this Cincinnati defense has held them together a lot. This offense has been good but not great. It's been fine. But it's been being held together a lot by this defense. And so shout out the Cincinnati Bengals defense and this offensive line that led up nine sacks against Tennessee. They had more, the Bengals had more sacks than the, than the Chiefs did. So again, shout out to both the teams in the Super Bowl right now, which we'll talk about the second game in a little bit. But, um, Man, what a win by the Bengals. Shout out all the Bengals fans. Shout out all the Joey Burr fans. J- Joe Shiesty. Joey Buckets, Joey B, man, shout out Joe Burrow. Um, He just continues to battle. He continues to be just a calming, 
presence for this squad. Um, what a dude. I saw a tweet that said, at the start of the pandemic, Joe Burrow was being carried off by his teammates at LSU winning a national championship. And now, two years later, in a pandemic, he is taking his team to the Super Bowl. Um, and what a ride it's been for that man. Um, all while, you know, tearing an ACL, MCL, and LCL all in <laughs> in the middle of that. So shout out Joey B. Um, what an incredible ride. Obviously, the Chiefs do not cover any of those numbers because they lost outright. Um, so they don't cover the seven. They didn't hit the pick em that I had on the teaser. Um, but we can talk about what I did do with a big bet that I placed a lot of money on. Um, and that I told you I do those. I've been falling in love with these 13 point sweetheart teasers because it gets you some crazy numbers to go with. Um, and so they did hit the sweetheart teaser because they only lost by three when I thought they might end up losing by more than that anyway. Um, but thank God for only just settling for a few goal in overtime. Um, but yeah, so shout out the Bengals deserved every minute of it. Um, love what they did, um, and getting to the Super Bowl, And it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun with, um, their opponent on the other side, which leads us to the NFC championship game, which we will talk about right now. So after coming off the game, the AFC championship game, you're kind of thinking, damn, like I hope, I hope that we kind of get the same scenario as last weekend, right? That we get, we get two games that are equally as dope, um, that both show out and you know, that we don't get disappointed. And boy, um, I, I also love side note. I also love the three thirty or sorry, the three Oh five. And then the six thirty time slots for these games, because one, I've always said this, you know, people will ask, like, if you could move anywhere, where would you move? And I don't really have, like, a a state in mind. I mean, I would love to move to Vegas, but in terms of just, like, an area, for sports only, I would absolutely go West Coast because I cannot stand having normal NFL games and NBA times that start at 10.30 or NFL starts at 8.30. And these games are ending at, like, 11.30, and then NBA games that start on the West Coast sometimes end at, like, 12.30 or 1. And on the West Coast, those games will be over by, like, you know, the the 10.30 games would be over by 11. And the 8.30 NFL games would be over by 8.30, you know? So, like, it it's just wild that we have this massive disparity, you know, when it comes to sporting event times. You know, obviously it's a three-hour time difference, but... I love the three thirty or the three o'clock and the six thirty because the six thirty ends at about ten or nine thirty, roughly depending on, um, you know, how we look at it, and um, that's awesome in terms of going to bed and getting getting a good night's sleep. But also, like again, you're not trying to you're not waking up the next morning and finding out what happened. You you are you're watching it live and watching it end. A lot of times these 10.30 games, sometimes the 8, 8.30, 8.15 NFL games, I'm falling asleep and I'm not able to actually finish a great game. Now, sometimes I am because the game is that good and I just suffer the sleep but or the lack thereof. But with these NBA games, it's almost impossible. Um, and so love the that start time. But anyway, back to, back to actually talking about the game. So Rams um, close as three-and-a-half-point favorites. Um, and right when I saw that, I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to take the 49ers plus three-and-a-half. Um, and then I teased them also to plus, you know, plus ten-and-a-half. 
Um, and then I also teased them to plus 16 and a half. And, and essentially like, like I've talked about with these 13 point sweetheart teasers is you're getting a team. And, and if you think the underdog has a chance of winning or keeping it close, there's no reason not to tease them up because you get them basically two more scores higher. Um, so what I did with my bet for the, for the four games was I took KC plus six with the teaser. It was KC plus six in the over 41 and a half. And then in the other game I did San Francisco plus 16 and a half and then the under 58 because again, I thought it was gonna be low scoring and the 49ers would be close to winning. Maybe we went outright, but they were underdogs. So that made sense. And then again, I wanted to take, I thought the chiefs were going to blow, not blow out, but win by a decent margin against the Bengals. So what I did was with the plus six, you're like, okay, even if the chiefs somehow lose this game, I don't see them losing in a blowout. I see it losing by like a field goal or close. So I took them plus six anyway. Now, could I have taken Bengals again? Sure, but I didn't think they were going to keep it. That would have having them, again, I guess you could say keep it within 20. But like I said, I thought it might have been a blowout. So I wanted to play it safe, and I won that bet. But I also thought that the 49ers straight up would just keep it within three and a half, and they um, and they did. They lose by three. But so here we go. My whole gripe all year has been that I don't think Jimmy G is any good. And... You can pull this game up and you can look at it a multitude of ways. You can say, well, Matt, I mean, Jimmy G kept it within, you know, he they were up 10 at one point. It was 17 to 7. Jimmy G had two touchdown passes. Jimmy G was 16 to 30 for 230 and two touchdowns and a pick. And I would say, well, you're not wrong. Um, but those two touchdowns came in the second quarter and the third quarter and then the Rest of the game, Jimmy G did absolutely nothing. From the fourth quarter on, they had negative seven total yards. So, we can judge quarterbacks however you want. You can judge them for the entire game. You can judge them fourth quarter. You can judge them situationally. But one thing I think we all need to agree on, if you want to call a quarterback good or adequate or someone you can trust your team with— the answer is this, and I don't say like this with rookies. I just mean like with established, who you would call veteran or even, you know, five to three to three plus, four plus years of experience starting. I think we can all universally agree that we would look at quarterbacks this way. When the plays need to be made, can you do it? Like, I don't mean fourth quarter. I would even mean in first quarter. Let's say the other team goes down and scores twice. You're down 14 nothing, and you have to have a possession where you know you've got to throw the ball eight times in that drive. Can you make eight big-time level throws to get your team back within a touchdown when you're down 14 nothing and reeling? You could make that about any scenario. In the fourth quarter, when you're in third down four times on a, on a drive that you need to tie the game or take the lead, can you do that? And time and time again, Jimmy G shows either one of two things. One, that he's going to put you in a bunch of shit for the entire game and then maybe pull a rabbit out of his ass in the end and everybody's going to praise him because he's a winner. And I will get behind that and not call him a winner. I don't know if he's necessarily a winner. Sure, his record when they when he plays is great, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's the winner. It means his system is the winner. But whatever, he's the quarterback, so he gets a lot of praise. But I can get behind, actually, you being okay with him being really, really bad for three quarters, but then in the moments where you need him to make the throws, he does it. But the problem is, is he needs so much perfection 
around him to be able to make those throws that you can't build a team. You can't. You can't call him elite because he is such a product of his environment. In college, that's fine. Quarterback, as Urban Meyer used to say in college, is a product of those around him, and that is fine for college. Because, again, with college kids, you're dealing with 18 to 22-year-olds and their emotions and their consistency is all over the place. They're not getting paid necessarily. Now they are, but they weren't. And that just happened this year. And so a lot of variables in college. But in the pros, this is your job. You're getting paid millions of dollars. And if I have to build every single element of the team to be perfection for you to be successful, that means that you aren't elite and that you're not top flight. That means you're just a quarterback that is average. Because elite quarterbacks are able to succeed when everything else, when shit hits the fan. Josh Allen didn't have a run game for basically 17 weeks of this entire year. He was the run game, and he got his team to, if they don't end up playing the Chiefs, and if or if the coin flip goes a different way, he takes his team to the, the conference championship and maybe a Super Bowl. Aaron Rodgers didn't do well in the playoffs, but in years where they had no defense with no running game, he was consistently throwing darts and taking teams to 12-plus wins. Tom Brady, when talent around him was suboptimal and things were bad around him, Super Bowls. Patrick Mahomes doesn't have a defense, sometimes doesn't have a running game, but he does have weapons, but he doesn't have a lot of situations around him where his defense is putting him in really bad positions and down 21, 24 to 3 or 27 to 3 in a playoff game, he's, a, he's able to thrive when shit around him is going Nuts. I think of a, an elite quarterback as that meme where there's the kid on the swing set, but then behind him the entire city's burning down. That's an elite quarterback. One that can block out everything else, but still be consistent on that, that playground swing and know that if he gets the ball, regardless of what's going on around him, defense, offense, special teams, running game, receivers have dropped balls, he can still get shit done. And Jimmy G can't. Now, for a while, Stafford wasn't able to either. And you can say that's an organizational failure. You can say that's a quarterback failure. Whatever you want to say, he was considered a top-flight quarterback, but even when shit around him wasn't happening, he wasn't able to do it. His record against his record against teams with winning records was atrocious. That's an organizational failure, but it's also a failure on the quarterback because he wasn't able to lift his team to new heights. Joe Burrow is doing essentially what Matt Stafford couldn't do, which is take a below average, if not a horrid offensive line, not a whole lot of defensive ability around him. They play up, they have played well in the playoffs, but situationally and statistically, they're bottom third DVOA. Special teams is fine. Their kicker is incredible, but like overall, special teams is fine. And he's taking incredible offensive talent, but a running game that's again bottom bottom half of the league, bottom third. They don't run the ball, you know, particularly well. And he's basically putting the the team on his back the, every single week in this entire year, which is something Matt Stafford was said to be able to do for a top five, top ten quarterback at times in the league, and he couldn't do it. So shout out to Matt Stafford for now getting a phenomenal structure around him, but then not fucking it up. He did fuck it up throughout the year several times. He led the league in pick sixes. There was like four straight games where you had a pick six. He was reeling. But then I think he sat down with Sean McVay, and I think he sat down with the team, and they just said, hey, we've got everything you need. Just stop throwing picks. Trust the offense. Trust the running game. Trust your receivers. Trust Odell Beckham, who now is showing to be still one of the best receivers in the league. 
Trust your talent. Trust this defense, which by the by the end of the year is going to be reeling, killing it, and is going to be clicking on all cylinders, is going to be harassing quarterbacks. Trust it. And just stop forcing throws. And now look at him. He, he did make a bad throw in, in the um, first quarter of this San Francisco 49ers game, and I thought it could be a problem. I thought it was going to be a trend. But he calmed down. He made the plays he had to. Defense took over. And now look at him. So... Jimmy G needs everything perfect, and he still can screw it up. And Matt Stafford did need a lot of stuff perfect, but he's just not screwing it up anymore. And so that's kind of where we are. So Jimmy G's played his last game for the 49ers, I believe. I believe he may not even be—he'll be a starter, but he may not end up a starter by the end of this. I just don't know if there's an organization that can put so many incredible things around him, like a a very— complex running scheme, a beautiful play design, um, incredible front seven with that defense, and then be able to also say, well, we can only still score 17 points a game because our quarterback's limited. Is there any other team that can really put together something like that? So perfect for him? I don't know. His skill set's limited. So we'll see. Um, But I believe that was his last game as a 49er. And the Rams are incredible. I mean, they didn't do anything overly spectacular in that game, but from where they were, when they were reeling, like we said, we thought that they were that there was a chance that this team wasn't even that good. And now they're hosting a playoff game at home, you know, after all that. So shout out the Bengals, shout out the Rams, shout out Matt Stafford, shout out Joey B, shout out Cooper Cup, Odell, shout out Jamar Chase, uh, man, CJ Uzama, Uzama, um, hopefully, I don't think it's looking great, but it looks like he really messed up an ankle. Hopefully he can play. He said he's working to get right. I don't know if that's going to be possible. Um, man, shout out Robert Woods. I mean, just shout out all these guys that we talked so much crap about or got so much crap during the year when they were reeling, and now look at them um, thriving to get to the Super Bowl. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much a recap. Like I said, uh, we'll do a Super Bowl preview, maybe bring on Robert Bell um, one last time right before, hopefully for him, a Bengals Super Bowl win, but um, hopefully a good Super Bowl nonetheless. We'll talk props. We'll talk bets. Um, we'll just kind of you know review the year, maybe talk about who he thinks is going to win certain awards or who he should thinks win certain awards. Um, but we will have a Super Bowl preview episode um, coming up. And, yeah, but what a season. What a conference championship weekend. Both games were incredible. What a year it's been. Um, Yeah, bummer because I had Chiefs Packers in the Super Bowl and I had Chiefs winning it all, and I thought that at the first quarter or first quarter and a half that that was at least one half of that was coming to fruition with the Chiefs. I thought it was going to be Chiefs-Rams in the Super Bowl, and I thought it was going to be a phenomenal Super Bowl. Not that this one still won't be, but um, my prediction slash finances were somewhat tied up in that. Um, Smaller finances but definitely predictions I wanted to be right on one form of this when everybody was saying the Chiefs were were down and out I wasn't ever worried and I just kept riding it but they didn't make it some of the some of the things that screwed with the Chiefs during the middle of the year kind of reared its ugly head again um but yeah what a year um excited for the Super Bowl in two weeks um we'll be back next week with a Super Bowl preview some props and hopefully get Robert Bell on to talk about his Bengals um but that's going to do it for this week's episode Um, We'll catch you next week, fam. All right. Peace.